0: Good morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to Ezekiel 47, and we'll be looking at that text in verses 1 through 12 in just a moment. Uh, I'll just let you know that this is kind of an uncomfortable week for me. Uh, Barry's going to be here tomorrow, I trained with him, and, uh, and I've learned a lot from Brent, and I've learned a lot from Andy, and so... Whenever Brent asked what the series would be on, Andy just kind of said, "Well, I'm going to do it on influence," and so that's what the whole thing's about now. And so, but my series is uh, like Eric's greatest hits that he didn't learn from Andy, Brent, or Barry or something, uh, uh, which is which is about five lessons. Uh, I'm going to try to fit my lessons into this theme of influencing others, and uh, one of my favorite texts in scripture that I I hope will set a good tone for what we're looking at for this week is this passage in Ezekiel 47. Now just by show of hands, how many of you have looked at Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12 and figured out the importance of influencing others from that text? Anybody done that? (laughs) All right, I think this will be good at least then. Uh, In the book of Ezekiel, there are four visions The first one is Ezekiel chapter 1, where Ezekiel sees the likeness of the glory of God. The second one is Ezekiel 8 through 11, where you see the abominations in the temple. uh, And then God starts to pack up his bags to leave, and he he departs from this temple. The third vision is Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14, in the Valley of Dry Bones. And the fourth one is Ezekiel 40 to 48, where it talks about this restored temple. I want to tie in uh, some of the other, the, the second vision in this lesson as we go through this, because in the second vision, it's the temple filled with abominations. And then in Ezekiel 40 to 48, and we're looking at what you could argue to be in some ways the climax of this vision, just this one part of it, uh, shows what God's intention always was for the temple. But in contrast to the one in Ezekiel chapter eight, Uh, let's go ahead and read Ezekiel chapter 47, one through 12. And we'll see what this text has to say about introducing this theme of influencing others for this week. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other, And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea, unspecified. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish, for this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes." "'Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Enaglaim, "'and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. "'Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, "'but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. "'They are to be left for salt. "'And on the banks on both sides of the river "'there will grow all kinds of trees for food. "'Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail.' But they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them uh, flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. We more or less just kind of taken this isolated section in this larger vision, just kind of plucked it out and just read this. Uh, what's the wider context of some of the things that we're seeing in the book of Ezekiel that would inform what we're looking at here? Ezekiel, we know from the first verse of the book, Ezekiel says, As I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions from God. So we know that when the Babylonians would go and besiege the Judeans, that they did it in three waves. Ezekiel was taken in the second one. And so imagine that he's been taken, what is it, five or 600 miles away from his homeland, and he's in exile And he's with other exiles, but they're by the Kibar Canal. If you were to look at a map where the Kibar Canal is, this would have been close to the roadway where you would have seen the Babylonian soldiers leaving to go do the third besiegement. So they would have had all of this in view. And what is it that Ezekiel is doing? Well, he's with these fellow exiles. Hey, if you ever watch like a football game, you know how sometimes the referee has to go into the booth to try to determine what what the result of the play really was. And then everybody's waiting for him to come out so he'll tell everybody what the, the play is going to be. I imagine that Ezekiel is getting plucked up into these visions and everybody's waiting for him to come back to let them know what the vision or the message is going to be. So the message of Ezekiel, the first 32 chapters are all about judgment. Uh, it's judgment against the Judeans. It's judgment against seven pagan nations around them. So can you imagine how popular Ezekiel would have been? As he's telling these fellow exiles, we've really blown up. We've not done what we we're supposed to do. We've not served God the way that we we're supposed to. In fact, the the temple that we all long to be back at again, that's filled with abominations. He, You could imagine not be a very popular preacher in some ways where he's uh, preaching. But uh, the second half of the book, chapters 33 to 48, talk about the restoration of the nation, that God is going to take care of the wicked shepherds and he's going to give them good shepherds and he's going to give them a restored temple and all of these different blessings that he talks about. Now, threaded through these two sections of Ezekiel, you've got this contrasting idea of these two temples. So if in the first section of the book where it talks about the judgment of the nation, in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18, it says, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. This is him getting ready, the glory of God getting ready to leave the temple. And this temple ends up getting destroyed. Uh, it wasn't what God wanted. By the way, in Ezekiel 8, what God, what the Israelites have done is they've taken the stale, dead ideas from the world and brought it into the temple. This restored temple in Ezekiel 40 to 48, the very last thing that's said about this temple, the way that it was always supposed to be, is that the Lord is there. What we're going to see in this vision is that if the temple in Ezekiel 8 took the dead ideas of the world and brought it into the temple, this temple is going to take the life-giving things that God has to offer the world and bring it out to the world. Try to imagine, as you're Ezekiel, And you've been brought into this vision, and up to this point in this vision, you've seen kind of the the whole picture of the temple. And now you're paying attention to some particular part of this, this this river, this trickle of water that grows into this river. i got this image here. I know sometimes there's liabilities in giving a picture when you're trying to imagine it with your mind. But I think this picture is helpful for what we're looking at this morning. Imagine Ezekiel here. He's looked at and he's surveyed the temple. And as he's uh, in this area, he sees... But but on the the south side of the threshold, he sees this little trickle of water coming out and this this little trickle of water coming from the sanctuary. And he sees that the water is going east now in the book of Genesis, which direction does sin go? Sin keeps going east, east, east. And now this trickle of water is going towards that direction. Keep that in your mind as we go through this. But Ezekiel is told he has to exit by. Can you do this on this thing? Yeah, you can. Oh, cool. So he has to exit by this north gate here. We know in Ezekiel, I think it was 43, that the, gate, the east gate was God's gate. And so Ezekiel has to exit through the north gate. And so he goes through there. And as he goes on the outside, he sees that this trickle of water is still going. And the, this kind of region is similar to Southern California where I lived for four years. And uh, if it rains, the water, the ground is just going to soak up the water. And in this kind of area, you'd expect that this water would have just sunk into the ground, but instead it's still going. Ezekiel is with this man, this angel man or whatever, and he tells him to go a uh, 1,000 cubits, 1,500 feet, further out this way. And as he goes, the first time it goes ankle deep. You can hear him like sloshing, the water sloshing around on the ground, and he just goes that 1,000 cubits. I don't know how he was measuring it out. But this man tells him, do it again. And he goes out knee deep and it starts to get harder to walk through the water. You could imagine. Third time, the man tells him, go again. And it's waist deep. Now he's gone about a mile. You can imagine him trying to wade through all of this water. And he's looking around going, where are the tributary streams? There's nothing that's added any water except for this little trickle that started in the sanctuary. He go. He's told uh, again, but he cannot cross the fourth time. This this river is so large, it's such a torrent now that there's nowhere he, he can go. There's no way he can keep going through the water. The, this angel asks Ezekiel this question, son of man, have you seen this? Have you asked yourself that question before? Have you seen this imagery and what this is supposed to mean? So imagine Ezekiel up on the banks of the river and he's looking out. This question is, have you seen this? He can look back to the temple in the in the distance and see that the water started there He can look out towards this sea. And by the way, which sea is so famous that it wouldn't have to be named? That would be to the east. It would be the Dead Sea. To the west would be the Mediterranean Sea. To the east would be the Dead Sea. As he looks out, he sees very many trees. This place that normally couldn't sustain any life or give any life to anybody has been totally transformed. The, The Dead Sea, from what I've read, is the lowest point on earth, 1,400 feet below sea level. If you go to the ocean, uh, apparently the, the ocean is 3.5% salt and minerals. I, whenever I go swimming in the ocean, it feels like it's more than that, but that's what I read. The Dead Sea is 35% salt and minerals. When I lived in California, there was a place called the Salton Sea, and it's like California's version of the Dead Sea. And uh, it used to be a place for tourists. A bunch of people would go there and there'd be like hotels all around it. Now there's just a bunch of abandoned cities all around it. There's a few people that still sort of live there, but you can see fish bones that are probably like 20 years old and all this kind of stuff. And it just, it's like really ugly, but beautiful at the same time. If somebody was to say in California, hey, the Salton Sea is going to become this place where it's going to be totally transformed again. Nobody would have ever believed that. In this Seen here that Ezekiel is seeing. There's fishermen all over the place now. This place that nobody would ever be able to find life in is now bursting with life. All kinds of fish. There's all kinds of fishermen all over the place. Did you notice though that in verse 11, that there's still swamps and marshes. So even though this place is being totally transformed. In verse 11, there are swamps and marshes. Well, what would be the reason for that? Maybe because this is a vision of the temple, they needed salt with the sacrifices. Maybe the salt would need to be there for some of the sacrifices or something. I don't know. There's another possible reason to that that we'll get to in a little bit. But for now, just try to get that scene in your mind. What would be some of the things that we would take away from a vision like this? That would help us understand what our mission and our purpose is. So I argue, first of all, that this is foreshadowing Jesus in some ways. And we can show how it's foreshadowing Jesus by asking a couple different questions. What's the source uh, of where this is coming? What's the direction of the flow and what's the nature of the river, the manner of the flow? Think, first of all, about the source of the flow of the river. The text begins and it ends in verse 1. It's issuing from the temple. In verse 12, it's issuing from the sanctuary. Where is it that God dwelled in the Old Testament? It's called the mercy seat. Have you ever noticed that, by the way, that the place that God chooses to dwell is called a mercy seat in the sanctuary, in the temple? And so from this place is where this life-giving water is coming from. Well, does that foreshadow Jesus at all? Did he ever talk about being the temple or anything like that? In John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. If the place where this life-giving water comes from is from the the, the, the presence of God, where God dwells, and Jesus takes it upon himself that he is the one who tabernacled among us. That means that what Jesus is doing is he's the one that has all of this life. This is the picture that it's looking forward to. Uh, do we live as if that's true, though? Imagine that you could find some kind of like, I don't know, box somewhere out on the street, somewhere that you could buy at some store that has all the blessings you've ever wanted. Do you think there'd be a lot of fighting for somebody to try to go and get that? Do you think there'd be a lot of zeal to try to go and pursue that thing? All of the, all of the source of life and blessings are found in Jesus. Does your life reflect as if that's true? Or do you look for life in all kinds of other things? So that's first thing to say about this. Notice though, secondly, the direction of the flow of water. This water, where does it go? It goes towards things that are dead. It goes towards things that are in low places. It goes towards things that can't sustain or give life to anybody. Uh, if the question in the Old Testament was, who can enter into the temple? Look at how this gets flipped here and it says the blessings of the temple go out to the things that are dead. Does that sound at all like Jesus's ministry? What kind of people did he go to? Well, uh, it makes me think about John chapter 4 when Jesus went To the woman at the well. And he talks with her about having living water. But did Jesus use the same kind of imagery for Nicodemus in John chapter 3? That unless you're born of water and spirit. He uses this kind of imagery with somebody in John chapter 4. Who's obviously this terrible sinner by the society's perspective. But then in John chapter 3 he goes to the teacher of Israel. And he tells him essentially the same kind of thing. Here's Jesus going to people, some of them look really good by society standards, others of them don't, but they're all equally dead, and Jesus is flowing towards people like that. Now, uh, do you suppose that that would be the same thing for us? I, I did not grow up in a Christian family. Um, do you think there, there's some people that, that their background shows that they've done the really bad things, and other people that have been generally pretty clean their whole life? Uh but they're both equally in need of this life-giving stream that Jesus came to offer. Uh could we be like the Dead Sea? Where we've tried to feed ourselves from rivers that never changed us? Doesn't the Dead Sea have uh the Sea of the, the, the Jordan River feeding into it all the time? Does, does the Jordan River ever change it? Never did. But here's this other stream that can finally change it. Uh has Jesus flowed into your life or Romans chapter five, verse five? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Uh, are you struggling with trying to find life from the wrong sources? Education, glory, beauty, strength, whatever it could be, politics. And you're thinking that this is going to be the thing that gives me life. This is going to be the thing that gives me life. And all along, Jesus is saying, I'm willing to flow into you and give you this life that will finally nourish you in the ways that you need. So you see how that looks forward to Jesus as well. But notice also something about the manner of the flow. This river starts out as a trickle. It looks, It starts as something that uh, that you'd never predict becomes what it became. When Jesus came... Uh, and he starts to pick his apostles. He doesn't pick the common, uh, the kind of, kind of common people that you would have expected him to, like the educated military leaders, none of that sort of thing. He never wrote a book. He never traveled too far for, for work. And when you really know your work is important is when you have to travel a lot. Uh, Jesus didn't have to do any of that kind of stuff. And if you imagine that you were in the first century and you saw a Roman military outpost and then you saw Jesus and his band of followers walking past the military outpost. And somebody asks you, hey, what do you think is going to last longer? That movement or the Roman Empire? Everybody would have said the Roman Empire. But here we are 2,000 years later uh, understanding these things that Jesus has come to give us. All right. So you see how all of this applies to Jesus. But I would, I would, I would take this one step further. And show that this also is something that foreshadows Christians. Whatever the Old Testament is going to say about Jesus, in a lot of ways are going to parallel what it says about Christians as well. We're one with Christ. So could it be said that for Christians that we are, in a sense, the source of the flow of life-giving water as well? In John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, John chapter 7 sets the context that this is the Feast of Booths. And during the Feast of Booths, what the Jews would do is they would go down to the Kidron Valley, get buckets of water and pour it out in the temple grounds in anticipation of God's blessings to come in the future one day. And on this last day of the feast where they would pour out more buckets of water than any other day as they would recite uh, Isaiah 12, Jesus gets up and he says, if anyone thirsts, come to me. But then he says, the one who believes in him, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Where did the scriptures ever say that if I believe in God, that I'll have rivers of living water flowing from my heart? I would argue that it would be passages like Ezekiel 47. Joel has got some passages like that. I think Nahum, no, Nahum doesn't. There's some other ones in the minor prophets that talk about some of these things. Do you see that one of the pictures that God is giving us here is that you being a temple of God now are supposed to have this trickle of water that goes towards things that are dead. So what's the direction of the flow? If this river went to the Dead Sea, if Jesus went to those who are dead, the picture for us is that we go towards those things that are dead as well. I think about Acts chapter 8, where the apostles are not with the Christians, and the Christians have all been scattered, and they're going everywhere teaching the word. Um, When I was in California, there was one of the members at the church that... Uh, owned property in Calexico, which is in California, but by the Mexican border. So if you go across the border, there's a town called Mexicali because it's in Mexico, but it's on the California border. So he owned property in Calexico. And um, when he had his own little private plane. So we went into his private plane from Santee down to Calexico. And I kept looking down the whole time. And it was just desert, 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 and then boom, a bunch of vegetation, a bunch of farming. And so I asked him the question, why is it suddenly that there's a bunch of green stuff there? And he said, well, the Colorado River was diverted in the early 1900s, and that's why this part of California can get uh, this water that it has. It reminds me of Isaiah 32, verse 2, where it talks about the king who reigns, but the princes, the people that are associated with the king, they're going to be like streams of water in a dry place. Do you picture yourself that way in your workplace, or your school, or your community? That even though there's people around you that might have a lot of things that look really nice, the truth is if they don't have God, they don't have anything. I remember whenever I lived in, in Brentwood... Uh, I didn't live in Brentwood. I lived in Nashville. There's a difference between those things. Uh, in Davidson County, the 17th wealthiest county in the world. And uh, one of the members at the church, Jim Kaplinger, wanted to go door knocking around, right around the church building. And it's mansion after mansion after mansion. And uh, we went door knocking, one person after another. And zero, exactly zero people were interested in having Bible studies. There's one guy that you look into his house and there was a swimming pool right, right there. And uh, I kind of wanted that house. But whenever I thought about uh, all of these people that seem to have all of these really nice things, it made me think at times, these people are the ones who are blessed. I'm the one who's a trainee, barely making any money. It's not fair. The truth is, I was like a stream of water in a dry place. That there's all kinds of people around us that might have a lot of nice things. But you're the one who's got this life-giving word that you can share with them. You're the one that can go to those who are dead and parched and hungering for something. Well, I'll talk some about that tonight. So that's the direction of the flow. Ask yourself, um, do you ever spend time with people who are not Christians? Do you ever reach out to them? Are you willing to show them love and grace and mercy? And are you trying to show them things that maybe they've never experienced from anybody else that says that they're a Christian? Notice, though, finally, the manner of the flow. Uh, This trickle of water started out really small and it became really, really big. And you never could have predicted that it became what what it would become. Of all people in the world, Christians should be the ones that don't despise small things. We follow somebody that by the world's perspective had nothing glorious about him, no pedigree, no education, nothing that would make us in an earthly sense attracted to him. Uh, imagine for a moment, you know, people talk about this idea of, uh, of planting a seed, planting a seed. Have you ever thought about how seemingly small planting a seed is? But how powerful that? A seed can become and what it can do. Imagine for a moment that um, somebody said, All right, you, you, here's your task. I want you to break a sidewalk in half. I want you to break it to pieces. And you go, Okay, what tool are you going to give me? And they say, I'm going to give you an acorn. So figure it out. Break the sidewalk with the acorn somehow. And somebody could go up to the sidewalk with the acorn and just start smacking it and it's gonna shatter to pieces and then the concrete's not gonna break. What's the other way that you could break the sidewalk with the acorn? You could plant, you could try to dig it underneath it, right? Planting a seed. What's gonna have more power? The slow process, right? That's gonna be the thing that has more power. It doesn't, but it's not as exciting. What's one of the most powerful things happening right now in West Palm Beach, right now at this moment? Is it really a group of how many of us getting together, looking at a 2,000-year-old book? Like, this is where the power's at. Yeah, but there might be people using, like, a jackhammer somewhere or using some big... What is it that people do around here? I don't know. What's, like, powerful things people do here? The beach might be... Yeah, okay, go to the beach. The waves are really powerful. I don't know. Whatever. This is the most powerful thing happening in West Palm Beach, are people that want to study this, and it seems like a pathetic thing that we're doing in the eyes of the world, looking at this old document, but this is where the power's at. So, could you ever predict that a small discipline would get you to a point of being an elder one day? Could you ever predict that the the small thing of studying every day and reading my Bible and and praying and and small ways of encouraging other people. Could you ever guess what that could become one day? Uh, Every small moment where I'm trying to figure out the answer to something and I have the humility to ask somebody who knows more than me. If I do that again and again and again and again. Could that get me to a point of spiritual maturity? What about small invitations? How many people do you know? who became Christians because somebody gave them a simple invitation. And you never could have predicted that that simple invitation led to that person then teaching some other people, who then taught some other people, who then taught some other people. And it's like a godly pyramid scheme or something now. What about uh, small words of encouragement? There's So one of the things that I started doing whenever I was in uh, Nashville... Is I started keeping all the cards of all the nice things people have said about me. So I have three of them. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, I've held on to those. And every time I've ever thought about quitting preaching, I, I go back to those and I read those. Uh, I remember, I think it was about six months after I became a Christian, I, I would get together with Andy every week, sometimes two times a week. And, uh, Andy had said, it was six or eight months after I became a Christian, he said, have you ever thought about preaching? And I said, no, I'm going into marketing. That's a dumb idea. Uh, but he said that and I started thinking a little bit more about it. And, um, and then I moved down to Nashville to train there and there's some people here from Nashville. They're here for Andy though, I know. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, and then I go to California and now I'm in Atlanta. And now here I, um, here I am blessing all of you guys. Because of what Andy told me 14 years ago or whatever it was now. Could you ever, I, that's a joke. Um, that's, okay. Could you ever predict that one word of encouragement could end up becoming something bigger and bigger and bigger like that? Could you, is there anybody that you could write a card to? Is there anybody that you could send a text to? And you might think it's not going to be a very big deal, but maybe it's going to be a bigger deal than you think. This is how the kingdom of heaven operates. Small things that end up becoming bigger than you ever thought they would be. I had mentioned earlier in verse 11 that there's the swamps and there's the marshes. Okay, maybe it's there for the salt that's needed for uh, the sacrifices. But is it possible that the swamps and marshes are there as a picture to show us that even though this life-giving water is flowing right through this area and you've got this water that could transform even the swamps and the marshes, there's going to be some people that are going to be so stubborn That they're not going to want this to change their life. I don't know if that's anybody here this morning. Where you've you've heard sermon after sermon. You've taken Lord's Supper after Lord's Supper. But there hasn't been any real tangible change in your life. There hasn't been any real desire to go to that which is dead. And try to share this good news with other people. To try to influence people. Uh, If that's you, don't be a swamp or a marsh. Know that this life-giving water is flowing right past you. And it's something that you can partake in. Um, That's all I got for this lesson. I guess I finished early. What time were we supposed to be done at? Alright, well I'm done. I'm not going to drag it on. Nobody (laughs) likes that. (laughs)